Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. What text of scripture is that referencing? Where? Thank you. Romans 8.28. Do you believe it? Do you know what it says? Do you believe it? Now, for the longest time in my life, that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Number one was just in knowing what the scripture said. And number two was then in actually believing the scripture at what it said. Romans 8.28. God works all things together for the, for the good of those who love him. All things. It was like this morning, right? All things. Well, what kind of all things are we talking about? We're a motley bunch of people, guys. <laughs> I'm looking around at trials and disasters left and right. Where's the, where's the hope of heaven? Can you make it through these trials? Is there something bigger than these trials? Is there more to life than these trials? Are these temporary light afflictions? Do you feel that? Is that the way you live? Like these are temporary light afflictions? But there's something far grander, far greater that we're headed toward? It's the same way with your children. It's exactly the same way with your children. The setbacks, the hurt, the discontentment with the relationship that you have with them, the brokenness. It is but a temporary light affliction. The relationships will have an eternal significance, the likes of which you and I don't know today. We don't know today. And so it doesn't change. Your relationship with your child does not change your obligation before the Lord, nor should it change your desire. What does he want from you? What is he after in you? What does he want? Obedience, right? He wants obedience. He purchased you to be a, a, a people of, of his own possession. To, to take what is the gift of the Holy Spirit of the living God and to live that out in this life, in this sin-sick world. You know, for, for those of us who have children who are not walking with the Lord, is that a surprise? Seriously. Is that a surprise? What's, what's less of a surprise than that? that? That shouldn't be too much of a surprise. The real surprise is that this many people are gathered on a Sunday night in a church in the Royal Grandy at 6 o'clock to talk about parenting. That's more of a surprise. Because what I'm going to set before you is everything that I've set before you before. And that's the idea that every one of us has reason to look at the righteous standard of God in the face and recognize how and when have I actually been desiring this for my life? And how and when have I been an example to follow for others? And why would anyone choose to have my influence in their life? What kind of example have I been of obedience to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who purchased me from the depths of hell? We've treated his commandments over the course of our lifetime like suggestions. I think that's one of the dangers of Arminianism. If you can choose God, then you can choose what commandments you want to obey. But you didn't choose God, he chose you. And so his commandments really are commands. They really come with a force and a weight, like a 30-foot wave, and your opportunity to be sunk by that. It will crash on you, and, and, and you will fall to its power. That's the, that's the wave of the Lord's commands. We're talking tonight about a, adult children. This is a conversation this is uh, following up on a study that we've been going through in biblical parenting. And it's kind of a culmination. It came as a result of some questions that have been asked after the services of the past several weeks. And I, I wanted to take this conversation to heart and, and present it because I know this is a challenge. And so I just want to run through some of these questions, some of these thoughts. I really need you to be mindful of the, 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 the things that we've set before you from the very foundation, from the very beginning, can anything take away your salvation? Nothing. Okay, so any parenting failure, is that going to take away your salvation? No. We're going to talk about some parenting failures. We're going to, encourage, we're going to encounter that again tonight, okay, in some of these questions. And as we do, and as we think about failures that we've had, 
What process do we have that restores all of these things? It's been paid for in the blood of Christ. What, what process do we have? Is there a means to, to re-engage in these relationships that are broken and to cre- create and have peace again or not? What's the process? It's right here. Okay, it's on your palm. Made it easy for you. It's right here on your palm. So you've got confession is the pinky. Then we repent. And the difference between the two being that repentance is, confession is saying what you've done is wrong. Repentance is saying, I never want to do it again. Forgiveness, restoration, and obedience. So we have this process that's been purchased. And if we are walking in a right relationship with the Lord, regardless of what failures we've had, this process is what we lean on. We throw ourselves onto this. We go to this so quickly because in this process, any relationship can be restored and any set of circumstances can be made right at any time, whether with a child, whether with a coworker, with a spouse. This is the means that God has given the process of peace. So we've been talking about this conversation, biblical parenting. We'll just review a couple of these pieces. What's the goal of, of parenting? What's the parenting priority? Is the G-O-G, which is my shorthand for, thank you, the glory of God. The biblical parenting motivation is not self, not others, and not fear, but it is the glory of God. We identified six unbiblical styles of parenting. We said that the goal of biblical parenting is to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. And so what we're addressing tonight, if you look at that goal specifically, it says in actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. And there's this idea that when our children reach 18 years of age, they've they've aged out of our care. And that's not too unwise to think like that because they have to go out. They have to go out. And they have to learn from this world on their, on, its, on, on their own. They have to figure out things that they didn't figure out inside the home for whatever reason, for whatever failures. But there's still this active component to it. But it's, it's the difference between, say, in the Navy, active sonar and passive sonar. An active sonar, like in active parenting when they're in the house, you're actively pinging the object that you want to get a response from. But in passive sonar... You're just listening. You're just listening. You're just taking in the information and you're listening. And that's really that, that maybe that change that happens there, the biggest change in parenting when the, ch- when the kids hit 18 and they become their own adults. So I want to address a few questions. We want to run down this road. Number, question number one. Let's just go here. Well, first, let me address this. Thank you for those who had a chance to submit questions. Uh, Your confidentiality will be kept tonight. I won't be using any names. Many of these questions are addressed to unbelievers or the the parents of unbelieving adult children. I believe the answers, though, to be not only helpful to the parents of unbelieving adult children, parents, but any relationship. So these principles that we're going to talk about tonight with unbelieving adult children are relatable to any relationship. Um, There will be a few questions that are specifically addressed to parents relating to their adult children who are believers. I believe that's helpful too because that's also a neglected relationship that needs to have some teeth put into it and understood according to a biblical perspective. So we'll launch into this. And question number one, you have it there in your notes. How do you deal with disrespect when being spoken to by your child? How do you deal with disrespect when being spoken to by your child? First, we need to consider your disposition. Are you letting this get to you and why? Always remember that who they've offended most. Who have, they, who have they sinned against before they disrespected you? God. They've, they've sinned against God. Psalm 51.4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done, evil what, and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, says David to God. You need to be sure to put the proper context around the disrespect. They have a big problem. Your child does. They are happy with their rebellion against God, how do you suppose it's going to go well for them in life? It's not going to go well, right? If they want to do that with you, who else are they going to mistreat in the same manner? Again, in full opposition and rebellion to God. Their disrespect has earthbound physical consequences, but it also has eternal consequences. Ultimately, God will 
either use their rebellion to crush them, to crush their pride by adding their disrespect to the pile of hot coals that God is heaping up on their head, and they will turn and repent because of the weight of the hot heaping coals that God has put on their head. Or, or God will use their rebellion and disrespect to perfectly damn them to eternity in hell because of their perfect rebellion against him for the whole of their life. So their disrespect then, is it wasted? It's not. Their disrespect is not wasted. It is either going to go toward their salvation or toward their conviction. This reminder should really help stabilize your disposition when you're dealing with the kids. Next, we need to turn to the response. So your disposition is that they've offended God first so you can calm down. The second is we need to consider your response. You know, when someone makes a, a disrespect a disrespectful remark, they've made a a judgment, which is kind of funny when you think about it, particularly from this generation who rip off and rip out of context a biblical command to not judge. These these kids, these disrespectful children of ours would be um, found to be in judgment. Disrespect is judgment. This person has decided to identify you as the inferior and them as the superior They are exalting their wisdom, ideas, and morality, and they're saying by their communication, I'm better than you. I'm wiser than you. I'm above you. This is the fool, right? This is the fool talking in their folly. And you're familiar with Proverbs 26, 4, and 5, right? Proverbs 26, 4, and 5 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. But verse 5 says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves that he will not be wise in his own eyes. There's no contradiction here. Many theologians might like to present it that way, but they're of the liberal sort. Solomon knows exactly what he's trying to say. The issue here is often an issue of timing. It's an issue of timing. Don't answer the fool on his terms or his words or in his time, but you must answer the fool so that you strip down his prideful wisdom. So your response to your adult, foolish child who is speaking to you with disrespect must be met with these four requirements. And I just pulled these right out of the, right out of the text here in, in Proverbs. The first would be, don't give him what he gives you. Don't give him what he gives you. Meet hostility with grace and vengeance with mercy. Meet anger with love and disrespect with humility. Because disrespect is so far away from humility. Number two, use biblical words and biblical terminology. Stay in the realm and the conversation of kingdoms and righteous standards and commands in the way of truth and justice and holiness and peace and love because these are the kind of things that edify. And the negative side as well as edifying, understanding sin and wickedness, evil, Satan, the course of this world, lies, deceptions, fornications, and all the other host of words that accompany a, a biblical vocabulary. Even be sure that you take the time to defend and define your terms biblically and call their words to the carpet. Call their words to the carpet and and show them that their words don't convey truth and love, which are relationship needs, desperately. Number three, don't get pulled into answering anything right now. You can pick and choose when the battle is on. Don't engage them at 11.30 p.m. at night or 4 a.m. in the morning. You're under no obligation to communicate at any time, so be selective. Think through the scenario and be wise. And maybe just let them know that you'll have to call back later. I love the uh, business owners whose shops contain this, this sign posted inside. It says, your crisis is not my emergency. <laughs> I love that. I've seen that many times. I wanted to put that in my print shop, but I never had the, the guts to do it, but it would have been a great one. <laughs> it's okay to wait. In fact, it is wisdom to choose when to disengage. Number four, you must answer the fool. You must answer the fool. You can't let it sit. It might be comfortable for you to just drop it and forget it, but that's not the biblical position. When you see sin, do you have an option if it's sin or not? Does God have an option on whether sin is sin or not? It's sin, right? 
I mean, that's what it is. God already knows that. It's already sin. God's already made a judgment on that sin. So you'd better be prepared with something of value, something with tact, something that will poke the pride, something that will jolt the conscience. You must give an answer to the disrespect of a fool that you love. What would this look like? What would this sound like? Well, disrespect can happen at any time, anywhere. It could even happen right here, right now in the church. You know, somebody at uh, John MacArthur's church ran up on the stage and started having a conversation with John. How was that met, by the way? Security with force. Men came up and grabbed the fool and dragged the fool off and out of there. It usually catches you off guard. Your heart rate goes up. You get defensive. You want to say no a whole bunch of times. And often you just freeze and, and you hold your tongue. And then you stumble through a half-attempted rejection of the offender's comments. So in random instances, it may be awkward, your response. No worries. God is sovereign. But I would ask, particularly with children that you know, does the disrespect truly catch you off guard? Does it truly catch you off guard? Haven't you seen a pattern of behavior that leads to disrespect? Doesn't the disrespect come with certain scenarios and language and conditions? I'm, I'm thinking that you could probably guess when the disrespect is going to happen. And if this is the case, I encourage you to be prepared. You need to be a monitor of the conversations that you have with your child. Monitoring the flow and the patterns of the conversation. You know, this is just being intentional, right? Uh, would, would, it, would it be helpful at all if we sat in counseling and I just sit like a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and just listen to your problems? You know, maybe in one ear I've got an earbud and I'm listening to the hockey game and I keep telling you, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> so, would that be helpful for you in counseling? No. So in counseling, what am I going to do? I'm going to try to navigate and direct the conversation based off of patterns and habits of other folks who've had challenges so that we can get somewhere with our conversation. And I have a feeling that too many conversations with children just don't get anywhere. They're not going anywhere because someone hasn't sat down and taken the time to say, we've got a conversation here. We've only got so many conversations in the course of our life. And I'm going to have a conversation that goes somewhere, like somebody's got the steering wheel and is going to drive this car somewhere. So you need to be prepared and you need to have expectations of their behavior. And so let me present to you 10 points of expectations and actions to offer a corrective to the disrespect. I'm just going to rattle these off. We're just going to kind of run through this a little bit. But just, just envision this, this disrespect comes to you. Now disrespect is a part of your life. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. You know, are you having disrespect in your life from a child? <laughs> Chances are it's abounding. So let's just take a look at this and go down this list. You know, number one, number one is you know they are prone to disrespect and that it can come at any moment. You already know this. So don't ever be caught off guard. Don't ever be surprised. Number two, you know typically the topics that provoke the disrespect. So when you're having a conversation with your child and you're navigating and you're driving the bus, be wise. Don't turn left. You know where left goes. Stay straight. Stay on the path. You realize, number three, you realize that they have expectations for the conversation. This might get a little painful. They have expectations. They have expectations that you will tolerate their language. They expect that you can be manipulated by this language. They expect that this attack will be fruitful. They expect that there will be no consequences for their disrespect. So number three, you realize that they have expectations for the conversation. Number four, you realize that you have contributed in the past to their awful expectations. So we're walking through this progression and now you realize that you've contributed to their awful expectations. Number five is a turn. Number five is you commit to Christ that you will honor his righteous standard. Okay, so now someone reached up and grabbed the steering wheel. Number six, you search the scriptures to know what Christ expects for conversations. What Christ expects for conversations. Listen to a few scripture passages. Here we go, searching the scriptures. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification 
according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 6.2, you know this, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Psalm 141.3, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. You can see Paul in Colossians 3.8 and verses 4.6. Listen to these two about language, about conversation. He says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And in chapter 4.6 he says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So we take a stock and we take an inventory as point number six. You search the scriptures to know what Christ expects of your conversation. Point seven, you prepare your heart to suffer for the sake of righteousness. If it happened to your Savior, are you believing that it's not going to happen to you? It's coming. It's right there. It's at the door. So you prepare your heart to suffer for the sake of righteousness, point seven. Point eight, you determine your non-negotiable terms of engagement. This is where you take a stand. This is the the first of saying, I know what we've done in the past and we're not doing that anymore. This is what we're doing because these things focus on a righteous standard, a standard of love and truth that exceeds anything that I've ever lived for before or you. And so this is what we desperately need if we're going to have a relationship. And so you, you determine your non-negotiable terms of engagement, non-negotiable terms of conversation. You require that communication be respectful. You require that a conversation with you would be mutually edifying. You require that certain words and patterns of speech never become part of your conversation. You identify your, your purpose in communication. Did you get that? You identify the purpose in communication. You create a standard of behavior and establish expectations of the behavior between you and your child. Point nine, then, is you initiate the next conversation for the purpose of presenting your non-negotiable terms of engagement. I'll say it over again. Point nine. Well, remember, if if eight is, I'm going to grab hold of these non-negotiable ideas for communication, then point nine is, I'm going to give them to you. You initiate the next conversation for the purpose of presenting your non-negotiable terms of engagement. You start talking with, with them with the aim of telling them your rules, your expectations, your standards. In doing so, you acknowledge the failure of the past. And this is where we walk through the process of peace, the failure of the past. You need to do this because it sets the context for all these new relational rules. You're going to introduce new rules. You're going to introduce new thoughts. Are you just going to do that out of the blue? No. You do that on a confession. You do that on repentance. You do that on the top of forgiveness, the request for it, and restoring a relationship. Do you see that? How awkward is it if you're to walk in and just say, these are the rules, this is what we're doing today? Pretty awkward. But if you walk into the room and say, son, I need to talk with you. I'm so sorry that our relationship has devolved into this. This is not beneficial to either one of us. I confess that as a father, I have not led this relationship like it needs to be led. I have let you down. I've let myself down. And more importantly than either one of these two things, I've left God down. I've really let him down. His standard is so high and his ways are so pure. I want what he wants for us in our relationship. And so I need to offer that to you. I've confessed my sin to God. I've repented. He's forgiven me. And I want to do that with you, son confess my sin. I don't ever want to treat you that way again. I want, I want to show you God's righteous standard. Will you forgive me? You guys ever played tennis, right? So what just happened? Where's the ball now? It's over there. The ball's over there. And who's, now see, this is where, this is where it, cuts, it cuts all the time. Can you stop God's wrath from coming down on your child's head if they choose to be unrepentant, unforgiving to you? Can you stop God's wrath? If they choose to have the ball stay in their court and they stay unforgiving, can you do anything about that? You're going to take back your request to be forgiven? Are you going to take it back so that the ball comes back over to your court? No. 
because it was the glory of God that caused you to send it over to them to begin with. And so now the ball's in their court, and what comes on them if they don't return the ball according to God's standard? What falls on their head? Wrath and condemnation. Is that your choice or theirs? That's theirs. They have to contend with God on their own, on his terms. So you say these things to your child, and in saying these things and preparing them through confession, repentance, and forgiveness, you're laying a foundation, a, a, a chief cornerstone, if you will, built on Christ, that now you can actually have a structure that will be built in a likeness and fashion that honors God. This relationship can go somewhere. You're going to build it on better terms, on more certain standards, on biblically driven, God-honoring, non-negotiable terms of communication. Because you can do that only after you've confessed, repented, and forgiven and asked for forgiveness for this and already received that from God. So you get that first and then that wells up inside of you a desire to be more like God. And then that puts you into action and off you go. So you're waiting for me. Oliver, where's number 10? Where's number 10? We've done, we've, we, we, we thought about the non-negotiables and then we took the non-negotiables and we delivered the non-negotiables and now what? Number 10, stand your ground. Number 10, you stand your ground. You hold the line. You prepare for the backlash. You prepare for further rebellion. Prepare for the name calling. They'll say you're a control freak. But remember what the years of non-control has brought you. Nothing. You remind them of your purpose to create genuine relationship that would be honoring to God. You give them a chance to state all of their objections. Please, I want to hear from you. State all of your objections and then you reassert the necessity of your non-negotiables because what do you already know when they come back to you and they present and state all of their objections? What do you already know about their objections? Tell me, what do you know about their objections? This is what I want to hear. They're not God-honoring. What are they driven by, emotions or principles? Okay, so whose desires, whose pleasures, who are they going to be seeking? Who are they chasing after? What do they want more than life and anything else? Self, self, self. What are they trying to build for themselves? What are they going to push back at you? The boundaries and rules of, thank you, their kingdom. They're going to push it right back at you. So you receive, you know it's coming. Don't be surprised. This is what they will do. You receive all of that because you know that because you've done it yourself. And you reassert the necessity of your non-negotiables. And why would you take the time to reassert your non-negotiables into this conversation? Why would you do that? Because I'm so smart. I'm so intelligent. I've come up with all these incredible words and all these wonderful ideas. And, and child, you just need to listen to my wisdom. Is that right? Whose ground are you really standing? When you stand the ground in number 10, whose ground are you really standing on? This is holy ground. Take off your shoes, son. You're standing on his ground because it's his righteous standard that turned everything around from all the way back at the beginning at point number one that caused you to even go down the road of thinking any of these thoughts. This is effectively Matthew 18, 15. Your brother has been found in sin and communication. Go to him and tell him his sins. If he listens, you have won him back. If he listens, you have won him back. Answering disrespectful communication requires looking at expectations. What are theirs and what are yours? Who's are right and just and who's are wrong and bad? Remember, in disrespect, they have already made a judgment about you. Now you must make a judgment as well. Will you judge that God's righteous standard is worth pursuit in your relationship with your adult child? Question number two. Simple one, four words. Am I too soft? I thank the parents who offered these questions to me. I think these are real and genuine questions. I think that there's a lot to be gained from a conversation like this. So am I too soft? In this culture, 
with our societal norms swirling around in your head? I'm okay with saying yes. Yes, you are. It's most likely that, yes, you are too soft. But of course, let's qualify this, right? Because it's question four words, really. And soft, we, we need to understand what, what are we talking about here? What does it mean that someone is soft? Or that their parenting style is soft? It, it means that they don't discipline. They don't have a standard or values. They, they likely don't have rules or limits. And if they set rules or limits, they allow them to be broken without consequence. This is soft. Okay? So this is what we're defining. This is how we're defining soft. This is, this is the weakness of soft. But let me ask a, a, a different question. Let's go to the heart of soft. What is softness a love of? Self? But what's, what is it after? What is softness after? What is it, what is it wanting? What is its desire? What is, it, what is it craving for? What does it get? What does softness get? Peace. What else? That's what you want. Peace. What else? Like. Okay. What is the idol of the heart of the soft parent? Okay, if you're the soft parent, you know, hold, hold on to your seat. <laughs> your idol is comfort. Your idol is comfort. You, you love comfort more than you love righteousness. Do you see a problem here? The way of the family is comfort, the path of least resistance. Make it easy. No fighting with the children, no opposition. Everybody just be nice. But what does that get you in the end? Disrespectful, arrogant, conceited, spoiled, self-seeking children. Disobedience is not a problem for these people because no one has ever proven to these children the honor, value, desire, necessity or command to uphold the righteous standard of God. Instead, the soft parent demonstrates that God's law is not worthy of recognition. The soft parent leads in disobedience to God. Leads. The soft parent leads in disobedience to God by worshiping idols that are not part of God's righteousness. Idols of comfort. Add to that happiness, satisfaction, peace, even this one, which is really popular and fashionable in evangelical circles, unity. Can unity be an idol? Yes. Would you, are, are you united to anybody for, for love's sake? Is it just, you just united to anybody? What is unity that is created in rebellion? It's wickedness. And do you know of a peace that comes as a result of disobedience to God? There's no peace that comes from disobedience to God. It's only peace through God and his law. So the soft parent has failed in part one of the parenting plan at the top of your sheet. Look at that. You see that bottom line, all the caps, all the way moving across from left to right on the page, right at the top? Love in limits and wisdom in rules. This parent has failed here. The soft parent has failed right there, right there. Love in limits and wisdom in, in rules. They have failed to recognize that true love comes in setting limits. Where do you see this in the Bible? How early in the Bible do you see love in limits and, and wisdom in rules? How early? Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. God starts talking to Adam and he suggests to Adam, this is the tree from which you will not eat, but you can have everything else. Love in limits. Love in boundaries. Further, the soft parent fails to realize that there is a great deal of wisdom which must be given to the children in the form of rules. Both rules and limits are only able to be established if there is a consequence for failure to honor them. Ooh, was that in the garden too? Oh, yeah, that's right, it was. It was right there, yeah. If you do this, you'll surely... Die. Oh, and then all of a sudden we wanted to have a little manipulator come in and try to influence us and perceive that God's words weren't actually going to be that serious, wouldn't really take place. No, consequences that have teeth, that actually will be established. The whole point is to create a cause and effect relationship. You see that on that sheet right there? You set love and limits and wisdom and rules to create for the, for the explicit purpose that there would be a cause and effect relationship. And out of a cause and effect relationship, what flows? The opportunity to see grace and truth. 
And from grace and truth, what do you get? What do you get the chance to see then? What's the, the flow chart says what's next? What's the aim of the whole picture? The gospel. Here's the hard truth. Soft parents love comfort more than the gospel. Soft parents love comfort more than the gospel. More than this, they prove their system is unloving by not having limits. And they prove that their way is unwise by not having rules. So what if someone here is a soft parent? What does this person need to do? How can this be fixed? First, this parent is going to want to confess the idol of comfort to the Lord. They need to tell God that they know why they failed, that they, they wanted comfort or happiness more than his perfect standard, and that they see how great a failure this has created in their family. And then they must repent of it. They must say, I never want to dishonor God like this again. I'll never be caught worshiping at the idol of comfort and happiness again. Then they receive God's forgiveness. And what does Romans 8.1 say about forgiveness when it happens? There is now, therefore, how much condemnation? Oh, that two-letter word, right? The no, the no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's step number three. Step four is then restoring your relationship with God, which inevitably, if you're going to restore a relationship with God, it requires restoring your relationship with men. Part of God's process of restoration is to take what you've done vertically and then offer that horizontally to all of those whom you've offended and present it to the people on earth who've been affected by your false idol worship the most. In this process, you would confess, repent, and ask them for forgiveness. And we already said what that does. That ball goes across the court to the other side. doesn't hit the net. doesn't go out of bounds. It goes right square into their court. They have to contend with that. At the same time, you let them know that you will not be the same, that you are changed, and that the glory of God matters, that the righteousness of God matters, and that you're not going to be so selfish in your pursuits because they only lead to pain and hurt. If they forgive you and they understand the needed changes in your life, you've won them back. And you've honored God. This is, this is what we want. And if they don't forgive you, we have talked about this, are you responsible for their unforgiveness? God's going to hold them accountable. If they don't want to honor God's righteous standard, beginning with forgiveness, he has a path to take them down. If they're his, he has a path to take them down. Is the game over at that point, by the way? Is it game over? Is it lights out on your kid? And they're off to hell. No, you know, one thing that I wanted to put in this morning's message was this, was this piece, this window. And just go with this with me. I'm just going to kind of move off my notes and try to, try to pull this out for you. But it goes along this line. What's more certain? That your unrepentant child is headed to hell or that you're headed to heaven? What's more certain today, right now? What's 100% certain? That you're going to heaven. So you're telling me that there's 100% certainty in grace and salvation. What should you be praying for? Because that other is uncertain, isn't it? But grace and salvation has this incredible facet of certainty to it. Certainty. And while you're alive and you have breath, you get down on your knees, hands and knees and pray. Ruth Ann has got the prayer list. Please put the child on the prayer list. Let us pray. You pray. Let us pray. It's not over. Maybe a few lessons from church history to end the softness as, as a virtue in parenting, particularly in our church circles. We, we, we don't find soft parenting as a virtue. Was Martin Luther soft on the Pope in Roman Catholicism? <laughs> was Luther's stand an emotion? Was it based on emotion or principle? Oh, his was based on principle. So what kind of parenting has the soft parent done? Principled parenting or emotionally driven parenting? Emotionally driven. Oh, so what do we need to do? Principled. Where do you go to get your principles? You go to the scriptures. You get your principles. You go to the church and you get your principles. So there's Luther taking his stand for God's glory, for the authority of scripture. Was it easy for him? Walk in the park, right? Everybody wants the spotlight. No big deal. This guy's not going to kill me. It's excruciating. It's painful. What drove him to do this? What was, the, what was the cumulative effect of all of his efforts? The Protestant Reformation? 
man, I want to give that guy a hug, don't you? Yeah. I want to find him and give him a hug. Second, I want you to consider Jonathan Edwards. His grandfather was Solomon Stoddard, a, a pastor of the church in Northampton in New England. Edward, Ed, Edward was called to take, um, take over for his grandfather, Solomon, in 1726. He joined the congregation in 1729. Solomon Stoddard died three years later. So for about 11 years, Edward runs the congregation on his own. And he knows some things aren't going so well. Most of the uh, congregation may not be saved, and there's a lot of Arminians in the congregation. They just don't believe in what the scriptures say. By the way, when I say Calvinism, that's shorthand for me. That's like saying Trinity. <laughs> Calvinism to me just means what the Bible says. So here's Edwards in this church. And in, in 1740, Edwards had grown uncomfortable with a long-held practice of the church. The practice was that communion was offered to all. No profession of faith was required for anybody to take communion. He saw a problem with that. Edwards firmly believed that communion was to be reserved for the saints. So he started passing out communion at the table up front and you had to come up and receive it from him, the pastor. Edwards was directly contradicting what Solomon Stoddard's church life had been like. And so there were family members that he was pushing back against, family members, let alone other regular attenders who had come to appreciate and like the traditions. Edwards held firm to understand to the understanding of the nature and idea that there is such thing as true conversion. That somebody, somewhere along the line, has to stand the ground and say, no, you're not saved. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Kind of like uh, Matthew 18, 17, 18, 19, right in there, church discipline, that type of thing. What did Edwards get? What did, what did Jonathan Edwards get for his stance? on this point of truth and righteousness. Oh yeah. He got kicked right out of the church. 1750, when he was 46 years old, Edwards was sent packing. And let me read for you what an eyewitness said of the demeanor and disposition of Jonathan Edwards upon being kicked out of this church. The most trying time in his life. Listen to this. This person said, that faithful witness received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies. There is the problem with the soft parent right there in the text. Their happiness, the soft parent's happiness, is within the reach of their children. But should it be, should your children believe that you derive satisfaction or happiness from their responses, beliefs, or behaviors? Should they believe for a second that you derive your happiness and satisfaction from their choices, from their decisions? No. You've got to break your children of that thought and idea. Your children should know, just as Edwards had shown, that your comfort, satisfaction, peace, and hope Go ahead, fill it in. Are in Christ alone. He's your sole source of satisfaction. You, you heap up incredible burdens on your children's heads. Ch burdens that they were never meant to carry. If they believe that your happiness and your joy and your satisfaction in life come from their performance. Ugh. This allows you to always have the righteous standard of God before you, to delight in Christ and his righteousness, and then after, after this, to see all the other treasures of life added to you if you would just focus on God's righteous standard and be delighted in Christ alone. Further, finding joy and satisfaction in righteousness makes you more prone to take a stand for righteousness. In the face of error and sin and wickedness and corruption and untruth, you will take a stand for righteousness. And you can do this with total peace in your heart for the sake of obedience and total trust in the providence of God. In the providence of God. Do you believe in the providence of God? Well, I'm dialing down on time here and I see there's three questions left to go. There's two of them that I really want to, want to attack 
and I think that I'm, I have to pick here. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with this one. You can stay after. I'll go through question five. I'm gonna skip three. I'm gonna go to four, and this will this will conclude our time. I will wrap up after this. If you want to stay after and make me answer five, I <laughs> I'll oblige myself to that. I'm gonna put two questions together here. These questions are. How do you speak to your child about spiritual things when they don't want to listen? And how do you do them? How do you help them see that you are a new creation in Christ when they think you've drank some Kool-Aid? <laughs> uh, okay, three big words come to mind to answer these two questions at the same time. Three big words: obedience, example, and influence. Obedience, example, and influence. Let's consider the first. This is your first job as a Christian. You want to obey. You spent years obeying self, and now you want to obey Christ. In order to obey, you must know his words. You must know his commandments. And so you read and study, and you throw yourself into his word to inform you, and you pray, and you see that God is changing you, and that you're becoming less like your old self and and more like his son every day. Well, when this happens, does it go unnoticed? I'm telling you, no. The world starts to get a hold of this. They start to to feel it. And being that it doesn't go unnoticed, what do you think people are noticing? They're noticing specifically, Galatians 5, they're noticing the fruit of the Spirit coming out of you. Most people would never call it that, but that's what it is. You're more gentle, kind, gracious, loving, patient, peaceful, self-controlled. It's a wonderful thing. And do people like it when someone's more loving? Of course they do. Okay, so the point is, obedience is noticeable, and obedience is lovely. That opens the door then for the next word, which is example. So you start out with obedience to Christ, and you chase after it, and you throw yourself into obedience, and you throw yourself into the pursuit of Christ, and knowing his righteousness. And next, you begin to live a life that that demonstrates an example. Every day of your life, you're an example to somebody. You're showing somebody how far into rebellion against God you can go, or you're showing them how great obedience to God really is. By your actions, you're an example. You're modeling conduct, and you're saying with your conduct that you have made value judgments about behavior, about conduct, that you can determine what is good, better, and best, and that you're wanting to be in pursuit of the best, because whoever says, I want to be in pursuit of of the worst things in life, nobody So your actions, driven by your obedience, make you a powerful example. You want to be this example to your children, let alone every other person that you engage with in life. Be an example. You know, I think of my brother Rod, who's an example to me of encouragement with his words, and and Miss Mary Jane, who's a, a diligent hard worker. They're examples to me. You need to be an example of righteousness and holiness, someone who is in total pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're obedient as unto an example, then you should want to be an influence, which is the third word, influence. Influence is powerful. Where did influence show up in the Bible? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, influence. We allow many influences into our lives. Give me your cell phone. Let me check out your apps. Let me look at your web pages, where you've been going to, who are you listening to, what are, what are the influences you have? Are they healthy? But suppose now that you are an obedient example. Do you want to be an influence on people? Brother or sister, you're commanded to be an influence on people. The Lord wants to use you to preach the kingdom of God. The Lord wants you to project love into this dead world. And do you know how love is projected into this dead world? It's projected like this. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is seated with the Father in heaven at his right hand. And he's there praying for us and interceding for us at all times. And he is perfect in love and wisdom and joy and peace. And out of heaven, he knows you by name because he saved you and he wanted to reveal himself to you. And part of his revealing is that from heaven on high, when you commune with him, he takes from himself and he throws it down into you. And now in you is the love of Jesus Christ the pure and perfect love of Jesus Christ. And that's rattling around inside of you because someone's living in there. His name is the Holy Spirit. And he is letting you know how much 
Christ loves you. And does that love just stay inside? No, this is the perfect love of Christ. And the beauty of the perfect love of Christ is that it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a love that's seeking to receive and receive and receive. This is a love that goes. And this is a love that gets out. And it goes and it never wants something in return. It just goes out at somebody. You can't stop it when the love of God comes at you. This is the love of Christ from heaven that comes at people. This is the perfect love of Christ that does not seek something in return. Is this kind of love influential? Not enough head nodding. (laughs) Does this love need to be modeled and followed? Yes. You need to be communing with Christ so his love flows from heaven out of you into you. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can project it out of you at somebody. Look to your left. Look to your right. Your spouse is the first target of Christ's love. Let your kids see that. Let them know that. But then it goes at at your children. And how do you influence? Do you grab people and say, hey man, look at me, I'm influential. Is that the way influence works? How does the Bible suggest that influence happens? Okay, look at the model of Jesus Christ. What was his model of influence? He was pretty influential. What did he come to do? He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Influence comes from service. So set your aim to be a humble servant. You ask the Lord to open your eyes to needs and then you ask the Lord for wisdom to approach needs and to serve. So obedience, then example, and then influence, all of this points to servanthood. You'll always have access to your child's life if they see that you are an influence that they need. If you offer valuable services to them, and I'm not talking about child care and car washing services. This is not, this is not it. I'm thinking really simplistically. Dial it down. Maybe the service your child needs is a letter in the mail with an encouraging word. A box of candies, flowers sent on a hard week because someone's paying attention to their life. Or a plane ticket that looks out in advance at the opportunities in their life and sees a shortcoming income and a lacking an opportunity for a Thanksgiving meal and says, I want you with me. I want to influence you. And I'm not so stuck on myself that I'm planning my next three vacations I'm thinking about your needs and your wants and your desires because the love of Christ has come down from Jesus Christ, my Savior, is in my heart filling me. I've been praying and thinking about you and you can't stop the love of Christ coming at you. Here's the plane ticket. This order not only will serve you well in your relationship with your child, but it's a model for your relationship with the church as well. But back to the question, because the question said, how do you get them to speak about spiritual things and how do you prove to your children that this is not a Kool-Aid-induced moment? Okay, well, you've got obedience, example, and influence. The question came and I took you down that road and I don't think I led you astray. You take those three things and you do them. You live the Christian life. You trust the sovereignty of God, which means that you don't force conversations with them you'll get the chance to speak spiritual things when you've proven that your Christian life is leading. You let the testimony of your life, love, and service speak for you. You let your actions and your new reputation precede your words. Failure is often getting too many words in front of your actions. We want to see you get obedience, example, and influence way out in front of your words. That's how you get the opportunity to speak spiritual things and convince them that you've not been drinking the Kool-Aid. Question five, I'll tackle in a moment. I'm going to pray, and if you have a desire to stay and listen, then we can do that. I don't anticipate it won't take any more than about four. Nope, it's going to take about seven minutes. Father in heaven, the gravity of these things that we're talking about are heavy. And it's really easy for a guy who doesn't have adult children to stand and say these things. But Lord, if they're true, they're true. And if the wisdom comes from your scriptures, it comes from your scriptures. And if there's a failure, an example in the past, there's every opportunity to be a righteous example in the future. And I just pray, Lord, that all of us 
would make it our aim to find your righteous standard and to pursue it with our whole lives, not cutting the corners, not cheating ourselves or thinking that we're actually following you when we're really just pursuing our own desires. I pray, Lord, that we would be completely sacrificial, servants in this world, completely sold out in obedience to you, that this way was your design is perfect with us, Lord. And we did not choose to be born and we did not choose to be born again. And as such, we choose to honor you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us, help us, help us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, you're dismissed. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, for those who want the last question, I'll go ahead and start. The last question is this one. My adult children are believers, but we have disagreements. How should I tend to these relationships? For the shortness of time, I would have you turn to Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.3, and Ephesians 5.31. The list again is Genesis 2.24, Matthew 19.3, and Ephesians 5.31. What's common to all those scriptures? The call or the commandment I'll read the first. I'll just read Genesis. Christ says it and Paul says it. It's this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the biblical commandment to leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. Get out. Separate yourself. Become your own husband and wife. Why? Because the marriage relationship, according to Ephesians 5.32, is a mystery which is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Your marriage matters. Your children's marriage matters. Something special is happening there. For unbelieving children, this is not as much a problem because their wild independent spirit takes them off into all kinds of sin and out of your house they go. They don't leave and they don't, they don't cling to mom and dad. They, they depart and they detach quickly. But for believing children, often parents and their adult children need to be especially keen to this biblical principle, this commandment in scripture. Disagreements will come These are not problems. The the first question that needs to be asked is this. Is everyone being obedient to the command to leave and cleave? Is everyone being obedient? Are our eyes set on that? The big tendency of some well-intentioned, God-honoring parents is to have some residual control in the life of their adult child. Whether that's in the form of finances or work or living space or grandchildren, pick your poison. These are the places that parents often need to just get out. But at the same time, it takes two to tango. And so often adult kids, even Christian kids, will allow mom and dad to unduly influence their life, their marriage, and their children if, if, if they get a benefit from it. This is an unhealthy, this is unhealthy on the part of both parents and adult kids. Each is really seeking their own. Each is doing a little kingdom building of their own. Each has a vested interest that seems pure from afar off, but upon closer inspection has elements of idolatry involved. The kid's idol might be comfort, safety, help, freedom from the full force of kids because it gives them the ability to continue to play in life, play, and do all their hobbies and not do the hard work required the hard parenting of their children that's required. For the parents, the aim usually has to do with access to the grandkids. These are, there, there are factors of control. It could be money, time, or help. And this is dangled or waved enticingly in front of the children. It seems to get everyone what they want. I'll just, I'll just come over and, and, and watch the grandkids. No problem. It gets you what you want. You can go out and and do what you like to do, your special activity, and I get to do what I want to do, and it seems like everything's going on that's great for everybody. But in the end, we have to be careful because there's very much opportunity for this to be manipulative, controlling, and motivated by selfish concerns and desires. Adult children can't take the bait. They can't be lured or enticed by ease, convenience, me time, or comfort. Because these become idols and they will break a marriage. Because they'll cause heartache. Because the hard work of life gets shouldered by another outside of your marriage. And growth with your wife through thick and thin gets stunted, even cut off, when the refining fires of providence are calmed by the cup of cool water and candy given by mom and dad. We need to have the refining fires of providence 
not be calmed by mom and dad's cup of cool water and sweet-tasting candy. But adult parents aren't off the hook either. All parents need to evaluate their relationship with their adult children. Ask the questions. Have I been interfering with sanctifying growth by being in their business too much? What are my motivations? Is my help truly free or heavily conditioned on getting what I want? Do I really believe that God would sustain them without my help? That's, oh, 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 watch out. That last question's a bear because it challenges mom and dad to look at their understanding of sovereignty and to ask if they have been playing God by manipulating the use of resources. So I think you tend these relationships by evaluation. You ask good questions of yourself about motive. Determine if your will is a major factor or God's will. Seek to understand what level of involvement is is healthy and what level of involvement is overbearing. Every relationship goes thrown back and put on the chopping block and you hack it up and slice it up and talk about it with your spouse and figure out what's healthy and what's been not healthy. There's much need to evaluate these relationships and to analyze and see for adult kids, are you acting like adults? And for parents of adult kids, is your level of involvement detracting from growth? After evaluation, there's opportunity to mend relationships, to reset the limits and the rules and the guidelines, to better match God's standards, to seek obedience to God's plan. Parents should be very sensitive to what God is doing in their adult child's marriage. Parents are no longer the the primary agent of sanctification in the life of their adult child. You're no longer it. God has commissioned several other people around them to be the primary and chief agents of sanctification. Chief among the agents in your child's life is their spouse. You know, this is the dreaded daughter-in-law or the slippery son-in-law. MacArthur tells a funny joke every year at graduation of the seminary, and I'll paraphrase it. He says, graduation day is here, men. You've made it. Many of you are surprised, but not as surprised as some of your teachers and fellow students. And the only surprise that tops theirs is the surprise of the mothers-in-law in the audience. <laughs> but do parents really see the value of their children's spouse? Do parents really see the value of their children's spouse? Do parents really believe that the person that your child has chosen will be the greatest tool of God to exact a powerful work on their hearts, the likes of which are not and were not able to be performed by mom and dad. Yes, you might cry a little tear over this, but little Jimmy is out of your house and you did the best you could and now God is going to do even more. We need to trust in sovereignty. We need to be very thoughtful and mindful of manipulation and of our own desire and our own wills and yield, yield, to God working these things out. Parents need to be thankful, very thankful for the spouses of their adult children. So in the process of evaluation, maybe great consideration should be given to creating a wonderful, joy-filled relationship with your adult child's spouse. Maybe instead of making investments that might be self-seeking to get the grandkids for a weekend and sell that weekend as, oh, you guys work so hard, you need a break. Maybe instead... You go out of your way on a regular, daily, weekly, monthly basis. You go out of your way to watch the life and work of your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law and you seek to come alongside them with a couple of incredible assets. What, What kind of incredible assets? Money and time? No, no. You come alongside them with the assets of your love and your encouragement and your kind words and your deep, abiding care and concern for them as a person and you pray for them for your son's wife and your daughter's husband you pray for them regularly instead of making the grandkids the focus set your life on making an endearing relationship with the spouse of your adult child the focus evaluate the relationship number one number two examine the motives number three reset the limits Number four, seek obedience to God. Leave and cleave commandment. Everybody's eyes on that. And number five, consider going out of your way to build a genuine friendship with your child's spouse. 
often so mis, uh, misappreciated is the, is the relationship that you can have with the spouse of your daughter or son. Okay, that's what you waited for. Hopefully it was worth your while. <laughs> All right, you've stayed, you've stayed your extra time. I appreciate you guys. Um, any questions? I'm, I'm ready. We can talk about them, but otherwise you are fully dismissed. And uh, I will let you know. Oh, hey, hey, hang on, hang on just a second. Hang on, hang on. Uh, we can do prayer. Re- yeah, hey, it's a great time to take prayer requests. If you have a prayer request, write it on a, on a card in the pew rack in front of you and hand it to Miss Ruth Ann Martin right here in the front row. The text messages say from 512, same message. Nope, slow going. So, no baby. <laughs> this child is going to be so rebellious. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Okay. But things are finally picking up. Contractions are getting strength pretty close together, three to four minutes. Eli and I are doing well. She hasn't needed any pain medication. Hey, praise so the Lord for that. Right on. She's going to share more tomorrow. Okay. Oh, hey, so just a reminder, because I didn't say this earlier, there will not be a Wednesday night service this week. Okay, no Wednesday night. Why? So that we can have... Friday, we can have a good Friday service on Friday, and then you can go home and watch the Passion of the Christ, and then we'll see you on Sunday morning for 8:45 for our service. For uh, we got some pancakes and yes, Brother Rod, he's on it. He's going to hook it up, Brother Don. <laughs> bring, amen and amen. Oh, hey, that would be good. Yeah, we can have a dessert after that. You bet. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, absolutely. Please do that. Yeah. And then next Sunday, because it will be Resurrection Sunday, and you'll be here early in the morning, we're not going to suggest that everyone return in the evening. So next Sunday evening, it's canceled. So be home with your family. Go and make the ham, make the potatoes, and somebody at the dinner table with all the children gathered, stop the proceedings so that you can preach to your children. So that dad has a moment to say to the kids, Jesus Christ was crucified to pay for sinners like your mom and I, okay? Take that time, take that moment. It's yours to take. All right.